Nathan, welcome back. Yeah, we finally made it. A big, big thanks to our family, friends, and the Guys Revolution community. Awesome support. And a special thanks to John Sonnenberg for putting together some new music for us. Thanks to everyone who helped hook that up. Check out our website for details about John's other work. Yeah, we're super excited about that. Also, if you haven't listened to the pilot, head to iTunes and subscribe or check it out on our website. Also, you can find a link for a CBC interview that we did a couple months back. Yeah, my kids say that you can hear me say um a lot, so go for it. On with the show. Episode one. Okay, so it's Friday. Daryl and I call each other on FaceTime every Friday. We call it FaceTime Friday. Ring in here. Okay, not there. Try again later. Hi, I'm Nathan, and if you heard our pilot episode, you know that I moved across the country recently, and because of that, I'm having to get used to these unanswered FaceTime calls. Now, I had every intention of staying in touch with my guy friends, and I still do, but my expectation on them was that they would do the same. But as time goes on, life goes on. Not so much for me. In my new life out here, things seem to stand a little more still. I don't have as much going on because, well, I'm still getting to know people. I'm trying to figure out where I even live. But for these friends I left behind, time rolled right on. It didn't stop because I left. They still went to work, spent time with their families, had everyday stresses, and fitting in a conversation with me on a Friday afternoon was just that, trying to fit me in. But for me, that Friday conversation was something I needed. It was helping me get through this transition. It was helping me to know that I was still connected even though I wasn't there physically. Me moving didn't mean I went out of their lives. It was just different. I expected something from them that I wasn't willing to ask for out loud. I put an unspoken expectation on our friendships and it wasn't doing me any good. This episode is looking at the expectations we put on each other and how we deal with that. Okay, so in this episode, we're going to look at two guys, Nathan and Joe. Hello, my name is Nathan Calhoun. I'm 31 years old, born and raised in Sarnia. My name is Joe Manifo. I am 40 years old. I'll be 41 in less than a month. Uh, I'm living in Saskatoon. And yeah, that's about me. Now, just so you're aware, when I was interviewing Joe, Nathan wasn't in the room. And when I was interviewing Nathan... Joe wasn't in the room, so they have no idea what each other were saying. So why don't we get each of them to describe one another, just to show you how different these guys really are. If you were to first see Nathan Calhoun on the street, you would say that might be a vagrant, uh, because he appears to be unkept. Joe is still like, Joe looks like the things that he cares about, so he's very polished, clean cut, had big sideburns for a while. He may not have a sense of style per se. He's now super insecure that he's going bald. Nathan only cares about things that are important. So if you see something that is trivial, so for example, like what you wear, or the length of your beard, or the last time you showered, or, you know, wearing Crocs, 
365. Winter, snow, sleet, rain. Those that's not important to Nathan, so he's gonna give it very, very little attention. He's always wearing like the shiny like docks shoes and like the white belt on the black pants. Um, like he, he, he looks very classy. Nathan Colton is the kind of guy who majors on the majors and minors on the minors. People always felt really special around Joe. He was always taking good care of people and, and making sure that they felt welcomed, especially in his own home. Do I put unspoken expectations on my guy friends? I actually asked myself that question when I was putting together this episode. But we all do it. Putting expectations on our friends is something that happens naturally, and I think should happen the more vulnerable we become with each other. But what happens when those expectations aren't lived up to? What happens when we can't live up to our friends' expectations? How do you even begin to bring up the expectations we put on our friendships without coming across as needy or insecure? Is that even something we should be doing? So why are we talking about this? What do expectations have to do with my relationships with my guy friends? Well, expectations are everywhere. And they can cause a lot of damage in your friendships if they're not addressed. And especially when you don't even bring them up. There was, uh, so what are expectations? I was talking with my friend Daryl. We wanted to chat a bit about emotions. Um, primary emotions and secondary emotions. And sort of like what, what the difference was. And how that might kind of relate to guys. And how they interact with people. Daryl's smart, and he has a background in family counseling, so he knows what he's talking about when it comes to expectations. And I thought he nailed it when he described what an expectation is. What is an expectation? Um, It's sort of like a projection into the future about what's going to happen, or what can happen, what what is predictable. I think that we, as, as just like, as people, we're always looking for stability, predictability, um, something that can be depended on um, because it it maps out um, an unknown future. Because the future is unknown, which brings anxiety. When something is like unknown, we don't know what to do with it and that causes anxiety. So if we can map it out in some way, if we can make some things predictable, then that reduces certain levels of anxiety. So the more people I have around me that I've known for a long period of time and I have really good relationships with help to reduce relational anxiety because I know them really well. I have a pretty good degree of predictability of what they're like, what what I can expect from them. So hearing this made me think of New Year's Eve. So this this guy was like, yeah, um, we're having some people over, come on over. And this was like a last minute thing, like maybe the day before. So I was like, okay, sure, we have no plans. So we go over, it ends up being all right. You know what I mean? Just your typical like New Year's thing, like nothing happened. And we're, you know, I don't know if I was expecting a program or what, but it was just, it was what it was. Like we were leaving the next morning and we went outside And as I'm standing there, the guy says to me, so are you in for next year? What? And I was like, yeah, I was like, it's January 1st. Like how, what am I supposed to say to this? He was like, yeah, I really want to make this like a tradition. Oh, no pressure. Join my tradition. 
yeah, so I was like, uh, <laughs> like I just kind of did my, my thing, like laughed it off and like got in the car and was like, what was that? Like, you can't do that. Like, like, I love how upset you were about this. I can see it. You were so, <laughs> I was so mad though. I'm still mad. That was years ago, years ago. <laughs> anyway, but then there was this other side that I started thinking about where I was like, yeah, but this guy straight up told me what he wanted. Like, I understand now exactly what he's thinking, exactly what will make him happy. That doesn't mean I have to like go along with it. There's something about the fact that he didn't beat around the bush. He said to me, I want to hang out with you a year from now. (laughs) And I don't want to just hang out with you a year from now. I want this to happen every New Year's Eve. I want this to be a tradition. And I can't ever go to him and be like, well, you weren't clear. Like, I didn't know you meant. No, he was as clear as you can possibly be. And now it's on me if I want to say, listen, I don't want to be a part of that tradition. He has been 100% upfront and honest with what he wants and needs. Do you know what I mean? And what did you do with it in the end? I just avoided him. So we're going to look inside Joe and Nathan's story to see how expectations affected their relationship and move them from two friends who are tracking to change the world together to two guys figuring out what their friendship even is. Also, for those of you who didn't grow up in a church or with a church background, some of this may seem a little foreign to you, but trust me, you'll be able to follow along. Oh, and alongside Nathan and Joe's story, you're going to hear another story of expectation from our resident storyteller, Kevin McGlade. Chapter One I found myself standing in a grubby sink at summer camp, brushing my teeth next to this huge black guy. For a skinny white kid from Northern Ireland, this was a pretty novel occurrence. There was only one black family in my whole town growing up and they were practically local celebrities. He was trimming his perfectly shaped goatee and I was trying to play it cool. He glanced over to me and said hello in a strong London accent. He introduced himself as Prince. Prince? Like the artist formerly known as? That's your name? It was. It turns out other cultures have come up with much more creative names for males than Colin and Gary. We talked for a bit in between spits of toothpaste. I liked him instantly. He was genuine and inquisitive and seemed wise beyond his years. As he packed up his wash bag, he told me he was performing that afternoon at the open mic cafe and I should come and check it out. So later that day, I eagerly hit up the venue. I was mesmerized. Prince and his partner James lit up the stage. They were talented, charismatic and entertaining. The crowd loved them. I loved them. They were everything 17-year-old me wanted to be. I pretty much followed them around like a groupie for the next week. However, alongside the admiration, a friendship was forming, a connection. When camp ended, we exchanged hotmail addresses and promised to keep in touch. On the trip home to Ireland, I was already plotting a way to get to London town. That's what she said. Joe Nathan's story. Joe Nathan's story. Nathan's story. Take one. Now, Joe and Nathan's story is a little different from most. See, Joe was a youth pastor, and Nathan was a student in a youth group. All of a sudden, Nathan hears, 
that a new youth pastor is coming into his church and he's pretty stoked on it. So stoked that he wants to showcase his band. There was a youth party at his parents' place. So I was over there in a suit and tie because that's just what you do when you're a pastor <laughs> on Sunday nights. And uh, Nathan and his buddies said that they were in a worship band and they wanted to play their songs for me. And then we dragged them down to my basement that was only like six feet tall. So everyone's crouching and we're in there like playing like these old contemporary worship songs. <laughs> and be like, how did we do? And he's like, yeah, it was great. Like... I'm sure it was horrible. Nathan played drums and they crashed through three songs and being the good, upstanding human being that I was, I clapped, I smiled, I said, that was great, guys, but it was horrific. As time went on, these two very unlikely friends, separated by almost 10 years in age, grew closer and closer. So it, it slowly you could see that a friendship was evolving and it wasn't just like an, an adult-student kind of relationship that was growing out of it. We took so many trips and went to so many concerts and did so many things that I can't even remember them anymore. So I think at that point, the barrier between, you know, I am superior and you're my student, whatever, like that just started to dissolve because even though there was eight years between us, I think we just had a lot of similarities. And um, as time has gone on, um, that gap has become so much smaller. Sometimes when you look back on your friendships with guys, you can't remember how they started. Other times there's a very specific memory. Sometimes it's a lot of work, and other times it just clicks. For Joe and Nathan, it clicked. Chapter 2 Unknown to my parents, I chose to go to university in London to be close to Prince and James. By this point, we had all visited each other a number of times, and they had introduced me to a stupidly talented producer called Dave. He quoted Happy Gilmore the first time I met him, and quickly became the brother I never had. I was now writing lyrics myself, and had begun performing. The four of us were now kind of a band, and we were inseparable. We began writing and recording songs, and on the weekends and holidays, we performed at festivals and small gigs around the country. We hauled our own gear everywhere, performed our hearts out to empty venues and shared beds in dodgy motels, and we loved every minute of it. These were my boys, my best friends. One night we were all hanging out in a KFC in Piccadilly Circus when Prince placed a plastic bag in the middle of the table. He nodded to me to open it up, and inside was our first self-produced single, complete with custom artwork and a picture of us on the front. We passed it around the table in complete awe. We were doing this. We were going to take on the world and leave our mark. And we were going to do it together. When you're in the beginning stages of a new friendship, expectations don't really mean that much. I mean, you can easily shrug off an expectation that a new friend puts on you. Because, let's be honest, you could just shrug off the relationship. But the closer you become with someone, the more real expectations become. You begin to see this more when you start dreaming together. Think of it this way. The more time you spend with someone, the more you start thinking of things you can do together. Things like going on trips together seems to come up more. Or starting a business together. These are the types of conversations that come up naturally as you begin to put more and more expectations on each other. In the case of Joe and Nathan... As time went on, their expectations on each other went up. 
But that seemed to be a good thing for these guys. You see, during this time, Joe had moved away to Calgary. Here's Nathan telling that story. Probably one of the most important things where I think I felt that we had something that was important for us was when he was leaving Sarnia and he hadn't really told anybody, but he took me, Phil and Daryl out to like the Outback Steakhouse in London. He drove us all the way up there and we didn't know what was going on. And that was the first time I had a bloomin' onion and it was delicious. And he told us there that he was leaving to Calgary and he like in typical Joe style, like everything was like, articulated exactly how he wanted articulated, make sure that there was no surprises. Like it was a planned, uh, bad news giving kind of thing. It wasn't just like off the cuff. Like he was like, he brought us to a nice dinner. He sat us down. He made us like, you know, he just like gave us gifts. and was like, you guys mean a lot to me. He's like, but I gotta go like, this isn't working anymore. Um, and I think it in that there was a recognition that like, there was something special that we had that most people didn't have with him in Sarnia um, because we could talk about things that he wasn't obviously talking about with uh, most people. Well, was, how, like, how did you react to the news when he told oh, you that? Like, were you mad? Were you? I don't remember being mad. Um, like I, cause I don't think I was invested enough in the future of what, what we were doing yet that, um, like, I was angry about it. Like, I, I remember it being a shock to the three of us. I think he gave me, like, a Nike watch, because I don't think he knew what to get me. Was, I don't, like, I'm trying to remember what he got everybody. I think he, like, gave Daryl some money to go to school, because he was going to Tyndale. I think he gave Phil his subwoofer from the back of his car, because Phil was really into that. I think he gave me a Nike watch, I'm pretty sure. Uh, he could confirm. He would probably remember more than I did. I'm sure I didn't wear it ever. How long was this into? Like he, the, he, he. I think it was about three years, three and a half years. Yeah. So I would have been like probably almost eighteen. Um, but it wasn't too long after that. So like Daryl was leaving to Tyndale. Phil was leaving to Tyndale. Joe was leaving to Calgary. And, like, that was, like, the first time as a teenager that I remember crying. And I remember, like, I was sitting on my mom's bed, and I was just, like, like literally weeping. And I don't think my mom knew what to do. And she's asking me what's wrong. I'm like, all my friends are leaving. Like, I, like my completely understanding of, like, waking up in the morning and going to bed was entirely consumed with, like, those four people. And all four were leaving. So I think like I was just extremely sad because I was like, this is something that I believed in enough to like care about. And I didn't care if I went to school. I didn't care, you know, about anything. I just cared about like what we were doing and these friendships and all of them were like changing. And that was like a very uh, emotional experience for me. Joe sees it this way. I think he was, you know, he was upset in a, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're leaving kind of way. But I think at the same time, like him and his buddies were about to enter university. So things were changing too. Um, I was changing as a person. The neat thing is, is that we just continued to keep in contact, like always in contact, always in contact, always in contact. Uh, even though our lives, again, were going in very different directions. Uh, there was a mutual, I don't know, enjoyment of each other. And again, I guess, yeah, sharing ideas, sharing, continuing to share life, I suppose. 
So after the initial sadness had worn off, these two kept in touch. And when I mean these guys kept in touch, I mean there were emails, there were phone calls, there were trips to visit each other. There was even a secret website set up to start sharing ideas. In one of our email conversations saying, hey man, this might be super weird, but I feel like I should be starting, thinking about starting a church in Sarnia. And then he says, no shit, me too. I've been thinking the exact same thing. There was an energy building. I could feel it when they were explaining it to me. Their secret website was constantly being filled with ideas of how they were going to change their city, how what they were building was going to be something new. It was constant and it was exciting. The more time and energy that was put into dreaming together, the more the expectations started growing on each other. This was something they were doing, not something they were talking about doing. It was contagious and something that swept people up into it. This was not something to be scared of, but something that was bringing them closer together. By this point, Nathan had moved back to Sarnia from school and had started a multimedia firm that would work alongside this church that they were going to start. There was one other big expectation that needed to happen. Joe needed to move home. Chapter 3 After 10 years of touring, four albums, a small record deal, a respectable fan base and standing for each other at our weddings, the four of us were now sitting in a kitchen in West London about to break up. It had been on my mind for a while. My love and respect for these three men was never in question. The problem was I no longer believed in the music or the dream. What made it so hard was I was not just walking away from a band, it felt like I was walking away from my family. We'd given each other our 20s, adopted each other's parents, seen each other at our best and our worst, and trusted each other with our hopes and ambitions. I didn't want to betray these men I so dearly loved. However, my life was changing and I could no longer hold myself ransom to the dreams and promises of 18-year-old me. Some of us were more ready for the breakup than others. There was a sense we'd not completed what we'd set out to do and what were we going to do now? In hindsight, I think we were all feeling to different degrees a mixture of heartbreak and fear. We all stayed friends, but it was never the same. How could it be? Lives that were so intimately woven together were now being lived apart. We became normal weekend friends. A couple of us eventually moved away, and now we catch up on Facebook from time to time and exchange pictures of our kids. It's strange. Sometimes it makes me sad. I wonder if the vision for the band was more powerful than the relationships of its members. Maybe this is just the nomadic nature of life. We meet, we exchange gifts, and we move on. Thankful that we had the chance to meet it all and taking what we were fortunate enough to give and receive from one another into the next season of life. Sometimes it's really hard for me to see the expectations I put on my friends, but they're there. Some are bigger than others. Sometimes they're thoughts like, I thought that Friday night we were going to go out together, or I thought we would work on that together, why that person? All the way up to, I didn't think you were going to get married, or I thought we were going to be roommates forever. Oftentimes, 
I don't realize I do this until I feel a sense of jealousy from them hanging out with someone else or choosing someone or something over me. I don't think this is wrong or terrible. I think it shows that I care. But what I don't like about it is the silence. It's not fair to my friends, and it's not fair to me. Daryl explained this to me by saying, The interesting thing, and I think like this came up in a previous conversation that you and I had about like expectations and stuff like that, is like how they're like not, they're rarely explicit. Like how much is like unsaid, and yet it's sort of like assumed that like we're on the same page or like that like we have the same expectations or um and then like the breakdown is when you realize like oh we we weren't we 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 weren't on this like we had different expectations joe moving back to sarnia from calgary was a big deal he had a wife with a good job kids in school and he was leaving a great job himself it wasn't a small decision and it showed how committed he was to this dream I move back with a U-Haul, and then Nathan and other buddies show up at my house on the assigned day, and everyone's hauling stuff into my house. It's like, it was as if I almost never left. You also need to imagine Nathan in this scenario. Here's someone who's watching a guy who was once his mentor move back across the country to work on a project that they've been dreaming about for years. And these guys really did pick up where they left off. We saw each other every single day. One thing bled to the next. And the beauty of it is, like, there are no dividing lines in our lives. Work, people, social, trips, whatever. It, it was just one big unit. Like, there was no divide. Not like, all right, I'll see you from 9 to 5, and then we won't talk again till the next morning at 9 o'clock. So I would say that our lives were completely integrated. Okay, so we're going to skip ahead in the story. Years went by and things seemed to be going well in Sarnia. The church was growing, things were happening, they moved into a new storefront location downtown. On the outside, everything was going great. So what was, what's the energy like when something like that is going on? Are you guys just feeding off each other? Is it? It's through the roof because uh, we're locked into the same idea. If you're a hockey fan, I would say it's like you're on the ice with a line mate that you've played with for forever. And you don't even have to look at him. You know what he's going to do next. So that's where you put the ball, the puck, or like whatever. And there's this, I don't know, like this symbiotic relationship where I know what the other guy's going to do. But beyond that, I totally trust him. Like, I trust this guy. I don't agree with him every day. We agree on maybe 50% of the world. But I trust him indefinitely on anything. So it was amazing, amazing feeling. Did you guys ever talk about timelines? There was definitely, like, how friends do. It's, like, the language of, like, who lives better than us was tossed around a lot. Like, and, like, Joe would always be, like, this, this is, I got 10 years of me easily. Like, it was just this, like, and it was always so flippant and everything was going so well, at least in my mind, that I never really thought about timelines because it was just, like, we're here, we're invested, these are our people now, these are the things that we care about now. Um, thinking about anything else, about, especially about going anywhere, uh, was not even on my radar. When the expectations you put on your friends are unspoken, they can begin to morph and change in your own mind, to the point where they may no longer look like the thing they originally were. 
When you're in a friendship as tight as Joe and Nathan were, this can really change things. You begin speaking almost a different language to each other, one that neither of you can understand. I would say maybe six years after things launched, I hit a wall. I would say that I needed a, he said I needed a sabbatical. Someone else told me I needed stress leave. Uh, we were going to wait till the spring or sometime for me to do it. Nathan said, no, you got to go like right now. So I was freaking out. I'm tired. I'm just, I'm totally spent. Like I'm giving it my best and my homemade expectations aren't really being met. Like things are happening and they're good, but the things I think should be happening aren't happening. Nathan's loving life at this point. He is throwing a party. This is great. It's exactly the way it should be. And I'm, I'm stressing out about it. And um, so I go on a three-month sabbatical, fully expecting that by the time I come out on the other side, I will have a, a fresh vision for the future, that I'll know what to do next. And I think that that's something that I've always prided myself on, and Nathan and I have always shared that we always knew what the next thing was going to be. And I think for him, he still knew what the next thing was. But on the outside of that three months, I couldn't see the future anymore. Someone had just turned off the taps, and that freaked me out. And to be honest with you, like that tap hasn't been turned on since. That was four years ago now. That restlessness made me super nervous because I was like, like, I can't control this. Uh, There's, I've tried to like change the circumstances so that it goes away and it's not going away. It's actually getting worse. Um, And then, yeah, eventually it just got to the point where he was like, I need to go somewhere else. I was like, where? And he was like, I don't care. Like, I just need to go somewhere else. Like, this isn't me anymore. One thing leads to another. And I think at this point, I'm, I'm keeping Nathan abreast of everything that's happening. But he can't believe it's happening while it's happening. And as that is happening, that's when things start getting tense, cold, abrasive. You know, we're short with each other. It's affecting all our friendships like around us he gets defensive I get defensive and then by August of 2013 uh, the movers are at my house they've loaded everything up it's gone and uh, days later we fly out and that's the end Looking at this friendship from the outside, you begin to hear the different cries of expectations from each of these guys. You hear Joe saying, I can't do this anymore, and I need you to support me and love me no matter where I need to go and what I need to do. And you can hear Nathan saying, dude, am I not good enough for you anymore? Why can't you stay here and hang with me? What we're really hearing, though, is a lack of clarity around these thoughts and not being able to say them to each other. Maybe until it's just too late. And I get that. We're men. We don't talk about those things. Like, I'm a, a verbal external processor. So it was like, like, I just went on the attack. For sure. Like, I just, I'm sure his inbox had so many emails from me. And, like, take him out for, like, let's go talk. I need, like, and then we just argue. Um... Was that like a convincing argument, like 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 trying to convince him to stay, or just try to understand? I don't even know at that. Point. I don't even know what it was. I think it was a, it was, yeah, it was acts of desperation to try to like 
to try to think it out. And because I think out loud, he's one of the few people that I could have bounced everything off of. So I'm like lodging. Well, did you think about this? Did you think about this? Did you think about this? Um, and constantly trying to wrap my head around it, hopefully wrap his head around it. And obviously the hurt and the pain was actually coming through and all that, where mm-hmm. it was as it, as if he was being attacked. Like I did something, like he did something to betray me or, or, or something like that, because that's how I felt. Well, first I went from Sarnia to Toronto, where my folks are, and I stayed with them for a few days because we were flying out of Toronto. And I don't know if Nathan and I were not talking or we were upset. We were definitely sad. I mean, we definitely embraced before we left, but still it was weird. Like I'm thinking about Sarnia the whole time. I'm thinking about Nathan the whole time while we're out here. And then we're staying at a friend's place because our stuff is late. And Nathan and I have this ridiculous blowout conversation over like Google Hangout. Like it was like a video conversation. So we're letting each other have it. Uh, I think his wife got on. She let me have it. I just listened. And then, you know, my wife's upset at me. She's upset at the situation. She's upset at them. The narrative in my head is this, is that I gave seven years of my life to this and I don't feel loved or appreciated. I'm tired. I'm burnt out. I need some stability in my life again. There's pressure at home for that too. Uh, This is an amazing opportunity for me. Why can't you be happy for me? Um, And I feel super hurt because one of the people that I love the most on planet Earth doesn't understand me or get me anymore. And I feel like all he cares about is him and he's not caring about me right now. Like, I know I went above and beyond to do anything I could have done. Like, I don't feel like I could have done something different. So I didn't really feel like it was my fault or anything. Um, But it did, to a point towards the end, it didn't, while the restlessness was going on, but when he actually made a choice of where he was going or it was getting really close, that's, it felt personal. Like it definitely felt like he was choosing X over me and the life that we had kind of like worked really hard together in the last seven years to create. Um, so it like hurt me. Uh, I can use words now that I didn't use then because I didn't even know what I was feeling, but like I felt betrayed. Like I felt lied to, like we're investing all of our energy and our time and we're talking about the future. Oh, we've got this for 10 years. Like all these, this kind of language around it and this excitement. And then it's all like, this is, I can't do it anymore. I'm out. Times continued to go forward and slowly wounds are being healed. Things might never be the same, but a new form of friendship is growing for these guys. Maybe what we all need sometimes is to get in a car with our friends, belt out the music of our expectations at the top of our lungs, and let each other know what we really think. Yeah, yeah. So I flew to Ontario uh, and I picked him up along with a vintage stereo, because that's what I do. I like to fix that stuff up. And But the the purpose of the trip was actually, it would have been cheaper for me to ship the stereo out than to fly out, rent a van, 
you know, gas, food, et cetera, et cetera. But I wanted to be trapped in a van with him for three days. And that's what we did. And we were in the van probably for 26 hours total with all the stops and everything. And I kid you not, man. And I had like podcasts ready to go. I, you know, there was music on my iPhone, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> we talked for 25 hours plus with no radio, with no podcast, at every meal, whatever. Only in the last hour where we were like, oh, you know what? Let's, let's throw some music on. And this is kind of a funny thing that Nathan and I do on all our stupid road trips is that we'll put on like songs from our youth or albums that we love. And we'll just put them on and we will sing out every lyric at the top of our lungs. And that's sort of our like cruise to like our like final destination, last half hour, last hour. So that's what we did again. Focus that strong, my strength keeps slipping. Now we're all the terminal cases. But we're so determined to thrive And those with defeat on their faces Are those that we must keep alive And I admire you